0: Weird people at work. Know any? Well then, today's message is just for you. Dr. Hunter's text is taken from Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 27. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And now, let's join Dr. Hunter for his message, Weird People at Work. To the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to uh, begin a new series today. You know, we are on a 10 year journey towards spiritual maturity. We are in our third year. You know that we have said at the end of the second year that there was a five fold avenue of purpose that God gives our lives. And during this Third year, we are examining one of those avenues, and that is the avenue of limitations. In other words, we are going to. What am I doing wrong, Todd? Should I move someplace? California? What? Just stand here? Okay, okay, okay. I'll trust you on this one. We are going to examine all during this year how God brings good out of adversity out of our limitations and why he allows those limitations. You know that the first part of the year we talked about the limitations or the sticking points that we have as we're growing up, personal development, relational development. I'd like to talk a while about our work and about the limitations that we find in our work and why God will allow those limitations. Now, this is a uh, going to be a, uh, a series, I hope, that is going to be complete enough that no matter where your labor is, your ministry, because that is wherever you minister, wherever you work, you, you minister. Church isn't someplace you come to minister. If you, if you teach Sunday school, that's a great thing and it blesses God, but you minister wherever you live. But I hope that you will all see that this applies to you whether or not your labor is raising your family at home, whether or not your labor is uh, being a student at school, um, uh, whatever your labor is, whatever you work at—if it's an outside paid employee's job—that's great. But I hope that you will recognize this as something that God wants you to learn, no matter where you labor. And the first thing I want to talk about is weird people at work. <clears throat> now, I don't personally have any weird people where I work, but some of you might. <laughs> all the people, all the people in the back room are going, "Is it me? Is it me?" You're talking about, "Nah." I just want to talk about why God would allow uh, us to work with such odd people. Uh, People that may be a little irritating at times. And why he would even allow that. Now, as I go through this, let me remind you of two things. First of all, the messages that I present are basically to believers. We believe that a majority of people uh, in this church have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And are wondering what to do between the time they're saved and they get to heaven. There's a whole bunch of time there, and we believe that that can be fruitfully um, um, filled and that you can um, even earn rewards while you're down here and store up treasures in heaven, so to speak, and there are, uh, there are constructive ways to live. So that which I preach to you is usually the message of maturing or Christian maturing, and so I'm usually preaching to believers. But we don't want to lose sight of the fact that there may be several in here who have never committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you that the basics to understand what I'm going to say and to do what I'm going to say comes after that first-time commitment. Please, before you leave this morning, if you feel a call of God on your life to want to live in any fashion that I describe, I would urge you to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today. And I will give you a way to do that. Um, But the overall... Um, uh, milieu that we have is to create the ideal for Christians and hope that that will attract non-Christians as well. Secondly, you know that part of how I preach is humor. Now that offends some people, and and they usually don't stick around very long. But I have I just know Scripture well enough, and I take Scripture seriously enough to know that it never airbrushed the people in it. It presented them with all of their warts, and it did that for a very good reason, so that we could identify with them, so that we could know that they weren't perfect, and so this is a book for us. Now, there are two ways you can approach that. You can approach it very soberly, heaping ashes on yourself, or you can joke about it, and and it kind of loosens the thing up, and I prefer to joke about it. So, here we go. You deal with weird people. I know you do. I know you do. And the reason I know you do is because I read it in Scripture. It's not something of the 20th century. It's something that people have dealt with from the time that life began. There are always people who think differently than you do. There are always people who tend to detract from your productivity because God has somehow maneuvered them into your life and you need to deal with these people. Now, the Scripture that we are to read this morning is one of the strangest scriptures in the whole Bible that I sense. Here is Jesus in His hour of passion presenting the story just before He goes to His crucifixion to His disciples saying, I am about to be killed. I am about to pour my life out for you. And then he delivers one of the most devastating statements in all of the Bible. And that is, And one of you will be the vehicle through which I have to do that. One of you will betray me. Well, they act right at first in a very, I think, concerned manner. If you will read in verse 23, you will read with me that they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this horrible thing now look at the very next verse i can't believe it. first time i read this i couldn't believe it. the very next verse and they're even connected because it's it begins and there also arose a discussion in other words they don't even leave one discussion and get to another they transition from who will betray Christ to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. See, Jesus has given them this vision that in the new kingdom, they're going to rule. So I want you to understand that they're reacting to this vision. And it's kind of like people who are standing around, uh, you know, Uncle Joe's dying and he's got a big inheritance here. And they're trying to be sad, but they keep thinking about what they may get. And there are people who are saying to themselves, well, I got dibs on Jerusalem. You know, I want, I want to rule over Jerusalem. Well, I got dibs on, you know. And there are people who are looking to the office that they're going to have. Christ hasn't even died yet. And there's just this natural, human, irritating greed. And look at what it says. It says, and they, there arose also a discussion among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. They start arguing about who was, the, who was the king, who was the greatest. And he said to them, now you can imagine what you would have said to them. I can imagine what I would have said to them. I would have said, I can't believe this. I cannot believe you guys. I am about to die here. You're getting dibs on Jerusalem. Have you no love for me? And so and so I would have gone I would have taken off. I would have just gone ballistic. Look at what Jesus does. Look at his reaction. He said to them, you know, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. In other words, uh, they called themselves benefactors, but then they treated people however they wanted. Then in the next sentence, he gives them a way to take authority. In other words, he is going along with this line of conversation, not remonstrating them at all. Irritating as it may be. He says, you want to know how to take authority? Let me tell you. It's the opposite of how you would think. You've got to get things right side up. He says, but not so with you. That's the turnaround phrase. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. Then he starts speaking of himself. He says, for... Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Let me ask you to visualize with me some of the types of irritating people that God may have put in your life along your work lines. And let me just raise up some possibilities of some biblical characters who may be models or ancestors of these irritating people. Did you ever have someone who was constantly getting themselves into trouble who needed your attention? You couldn't do your job because the guy was over here or the gal was over here saying, Oh, I've got myself in another fix. Can you just give me a little help here? Do you remember when Abram started and took his whole family out, his nephew Lot and everybody out? His job was to be the leader of that family. That was his job. And to take them and to take them on a journey and to keep peace and to make them a nation. And not even out of the starting blocks, Lot's family starts arguing with Abraham's nuclear family. And Abraham goes to him and says, Lot, let's not do this. Let's not do this. I'll tell you what, it's choose whatever land you want to take to your family to dwell and I'll just choose the other part of that land. You know, you you first choice, go ahead take it. Lot says, okay. Looks around and says, I choose Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a good choice. <laughs> Not a good choice. See, back then as today, evil was beautiful. It was a beautiful land. It was an attractive land. And back then as today, he thought he was getting the best. That the world had to offer. And he was getting the worst. So he says, I choose Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know the story. You know you've read it. He goes in there and gets himself into a world of mess. And it says in Genesis nineteen, in closing verses of Genesis nineteen, that Abraham's heart is praying for this boy but god sends down probably because of the ir- prayers of abraham god sends down an angel and finally gets him out of there lots of wife doesn't make it all the way she always wants to look back says well we did have some good but there was a lot just as irritating as ever getting himself into trouble do you ever have anybody where you work just always needing attention if 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 they ought to turn right they'll always turn left you know, if they ought to stay up, they always stay down. You know, they just, just kind of need constant attention. And a good part of your time is bailing them out. What about people that you were in leadership with that, when you have just a brief separation from them, they start listening to all of the people around them, and they just start going a completely different direction. Do you ever have somebody like that? You thought you were a team. You thought you were of one mind. You even requested them to be on the team. And all of a sudden, he's going, shh. Ever read Exodus 32? Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God. And God stops for a minute. He's having a good time with God. God stops for a minute. My translation. It says, uh-oh. Moses said, uh, uh-oh. Yeah, he says, Moses, better get back down there. Why? Oh, the people are messing up. Go on, go on down, go on down. Here comes Moses. When he's 10 commandments, tablets written on both sides, coming down. Joshua's with him. Joshua says, it's all annoying. It sounds like a war. Moses says, no, it's not a war. They come up on this scene. Now, here's Moses' brother. His own brother. The guy who Moses requested to be co-pastor with him. The guy who has been installed into the priesthood of Israel. The guy who Moses said, Look, I can't talk. My brother Aaron's so much better at this than I am. There he sees Aaron doing this heebie jeebie dance in front of this cow made out of girls' earrings. And he's going, oh. He goes up there and says, What's up? Aaron says, Well, they just wanted to do this and I just thought we'd do it. Do you ever have somebody like you are in leadership with them? You turn your back for one moment, and they go, "Build a cow. Let's do what everybody wants to do. <laughs> whatever anybody wants to do, I want to be your favorite leader. I, whatever you guys want to do, that's what I want to do. I'm your leader." Their form of leadership is sense which way the crowd's going and just get there ahead of time. That's their form of leadership. So you're linked with people who are very weak. And you spend a good deal of your time going, no, trying not to look like you're against people, but knowing that's not what leadership's all about. Did you ever work with somebody who has an authority over you and just every once in a while would take off on you for no apparent reason? I mean, the guy or gal's dog didn't chew up the shirt or whatever. I mean, it just no reason. I mean, just... Take off. David had that situation, working for Saul. I mean he'd go in supposed to go in and just play, you know, he's a he was a court musician. Go in and play, you know. And Paul do, or Saul would do this poltergeist thing, you know, I mean he'd look over, His Face was all twisted up. The Bible says the evil spirit came on him, picked up a sword or a spear, it went whew, whew, David's going. <laughs> Just took off on him. (laughs) You know, no encores that day. (laughs) You can bet nobody was wearing I'm with a band shirt. (laughs) Nobody wanted the job. Such an unpredictable authority he had to work for. I mean, the boss would just come in and whatever mood he was in, took off in that mood. Angry person. Did you ever have to work with somebody who was so unpredictable and so angry and had their own agenda, you couldn't figure it out. You couldn't even figure out what buttons to push because somebody else was pushing the buttons. You didn't even know what to do about it. I mean, you're trying your best to calm him down and it wasn't working long term. Did you ever work with people, colleagues, who wanted to fix your life? You didn't even ask them to fix your life. But they want to tell you how to fix your life. I mean, there may be some things going wrong in your life, and you're trying to figure that out with God, but here they come. Hey, I read this book. I think it's for you. I want to tell you what's in this book. They come and say, you know what's wrong? I'll tell you what's wrong with your life. You didn't ask, but they're going to tell you anyhow. Job was in this situation. Job had a lot of stuff going wrong in his life. And his friends, these pseudo-theologians, Said, oh, we know about life. We'll tell you what's wrong here, Job. Sin! Now, let me stop right here and say that the basic thing wrong with our lives is sin. I mean, you know, they had the basics right. But it doesn't mean that every little mechanical thing can be traced back to that. But that was their answer to everything. And you could not win with these guys. Don't get saying, well, you know, if I'm sitting show it to me, I don't, no, it's not my problem. There's something else going on here. And it was bigger than any of them could understand, which was exactly God's point. You aren't going to understand this. So relax. I'm using it here. This is something that's above you. This is not something that you're going to manage here. That was God's point. But these guys wanted to help him solve it and they just got him more and more and more depressed you ever have people around you like that the more they talk the more depressed you get they're not helping you out they're just giving you a whole bunch of stuff you can't even do anything about because they don't know you well enough to know the problem but they think they do well and Christians some of Christians are worse I mean Christians sometimes you can't win with Christians you understand that I mean, believers. Because they they got this God thing, and they say, well, I'll tell you why you're miserable. Sin. And then, if you have a little better day, and you start grinning for a while, and you start having a joyful attitude, they say, well, I'll tell you why you're happy. Sin. <laughs> if, you were, if you were really holy, you'd be miserable because people would be persecuting you. You can't win. You can't win. You can't come up with the right answer. Some people are like that. Christian or not. Well... Did you ever work with somebody who you thought was there for you? I mean, you just thought you were a team. And all of a sudden, you turn around and they weren't there anymore. They were gone. I mean, this may be family member. This may be, you know... I mean, you just turn around and they, with no explanation, have just faded out of the picture. That's what happened with Paul and Demas. Paul wrote about Demas three times. First time he wrote, he said, man, this guy Demas, man, he just... He'd taken off. I mean, he sold out for Christ. This, this guy's great. Second time he wrote said, Well, Demas is with him. Third time he wrote, Second Timothy four, said, Demas, having loved this present world, has abandoned me. Poor Paul standing out there. The only person he's got left is Luke. He's saying, Send me some people. I'm lonely. This guy's crushed. Because he thought he had a friend. And this guy just trailed off. Well, went off. Just went off. How about working with blockheads like Jesus did? Now, I don't mean to be insulting because I'm a disciple and I'm a blockhead also. I'm stubborn. Stubborn slow. But I want you to know that the original disciples were too. We're not the only slow ones. How many many times did Jesus look at the disciples and go, how long have I got to stick around with you guys? He demonstrated faith for them. He said, look, do what I do. He sent them out on training missions. And they would still come back and say, we can't do this. And he'd say, you just don't get it. Faith. This kind comes out by faith. You just got to believe. Faith. We can't do that. He said, if you have just a little bit, they can we'll give us more. <laughs> he said, it's, it's not the amount. You just got a little bit will do the thing. We don't get it. Do you work with people like that? just don't get it. I know some of you mothers feel like that. How many times do you have to tell your kids the same thing over and over? Okay, okay. 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 When did you ever say that? I never heard you say that. John, John Wesley's father. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. Was so, was such a blockhead. And I, his father once looked at his mother, Susanna, who had infinite patience. And he said, how in the world can you continue to tell that blockhead the same thing 20 times before it actually works? And Susanna never paused. She looked at him she said, Because if I told it to him only 19 times, I'd have wasted my breath. Jesus must have felt like that with the disciples. Frustrated. Yet knowing that there was a mission, that they were not his disciples by their own choice or by accident, but that God had led him to choose them. And so he stayed persistently in that process. Why does God allow us to work with irritating people? Weird people who don't think like we think. Whether they're in our family or at our school or at our work, why does God allow that? Well, I believe there's three reasons. I may only tell you two, though, because I only had two... Three reasons that are just evident in this particular scripture. Number one, God wants us to realize, first of all, that patience is not a passive virtue that you get once and have it for the rest of your life. I don't know very many people who don't have the absolute opposite view of patience as to what it really is. People believe that patience is something that you just have and then nothing really affects you profoundly anymore. It's like you've fallen into a vat of lanolin and you've just kind of gotten soft. And you don't worry about anything anymore. Does that sound like a fruit of the Spirit to you? Nah. Patience is an active virtue. And the only thing that will help with irritating people is finding something stronger than your own irritation. It's not disconnecting and saying, Well, I just don't care. You know? People have been trying that through drugs for years. Patience is not the antithesis to drugs. Patience is something that you say, I will use. It is mine in Christ. I will claim it. I will use it. I will employ it. I will call upon it. I need patience and I will use it. You see the difference? God will continue to send us irritating people for the rest of our lives. And the only way that we can keep from killing them is to use the patience that comes with the Holy Spirit. That can allow us enough time to say, God, what are you doing here? What are you doing in their lives? What are you doing in my life? God wants us to need patience. God said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus said that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are the people who have run out of every earthly resource they have, and they've got nothing left but to depend upon God. That's all they got left. And Jesus said, blessed are you because you finally came down to where you didn't have anything and you had to throw yourself on me. Now, you'll see what patience is. Second, God wants us to see that there is a reason why these people are in our lives. You know, one of the most morose disgusting I'm just trying to think of the right adjective discouraging plays that was ever written was one of the most accurate plays ever written. It was called No Exit. It was written by a French existentialist atheist existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre. And Jean-Paul Sartre's view of the universe was that there was no transcendent God. And in this play there are three characters who end up in what is, metaphorically for him, hell. I mean, he doesn't believe in hell, but he used it as a staging process. And there are three characters, Garcin, Inez, and Estelle, who are in this room together, and they all have personal needs that they want to get answered. Garcin is hoping to attract Inez because he admires her strength. Inez is a lesbian who wants to attract Estelle, pretty little blonde, because she likes girls. And Estelle wants to get Garson's um, approval and love because she's always been fulfilled or tried to be fulfilled in men. And so here is this horrible triangle happening for an eternity. And the gist of the play is that when your only thought is to get your own needs answered and other people will not or cannot answer them and you are doomed for the rest of your life to make that chase, it is hell. And you know what? He's absolutely right. If life were about answering our own needs, life would be hell. There are many people who live in hell or have a premonition of what hell is going to be like on this earth. But God said, there's another possibility here. The possibility is, and the reality is, Not that God is just far off, but that God is in that very situation and He wants to work something out of that situation that is not immediately evident. The second thing that God wants us to learn is that He is in the details of life. Do you know when people believe that things are happening to them by accident, they are by all means discouraged because they have no meaning. If it's just an accident, there's no meaning here. But if, You understand that God arranges the details for a purpose. That gives you hope. That says, I'm not going through this for nothing. This is an arranged deal here. Now, it comes down to the importance of your theology. What is your theology? Do you have a deist theology that says that God wound up the universe and set it and let it run and just stop and look and see how the thing's unfolding? Or do you have the opposite theology, a Reformed theology, that says, no, God is in every detail of the universe? I read this week the end of Isaac Newton's Principia. There's a general scalarum at the end. Brian hoster he's a, he's a renegade uh, uh, physicist. Yeah, there you are, Brian. He wrote me a good letter this week. Brian's a renegade physicist, kind of a physicist-theologian type guy. And both of us have the same kind of an interest. What? does the arrangement of the world have to do with the character of God? Isaac Newton, who is the father of modern physics, said in this general scalarum God is a relative term. God is not God unless He has dominion in every particle of the universe. He said the only reason that the universe can have dominion the beauty and symmetry that it has is that god every minute is managing every detail now there were following scientists who looked at the symmetry of the world and came up with just the opposite conclusion leibniz kant darwin all said well the world operates so perfectly because god and they were all they were all believers But God made it so perfect to operate so perfectly so he wouldn't have anything to do with it. He didn't have to have anything to do with it. Let me ask you to choose one of those philosophies, will you? Because you can't live with them both. And let me just ask you to consider your own experience when you're choosing a theology. Is your life such that you just create a system and then you step back and you watch it run perfectly? Is that how your house works best? You just do it and you get just the right system and then you just relax. Now you know as well as I do that this whole world operates on entropy. And when you step back, it all comes apart. The character of God is to be involved in every detail. The irritating people in your life aren't there by accident. They're there for a reason. The reason that Jesus didn't come across the table at these guys was because... He knew that God had a reason for them. He had not chosen wrongly. But they had an impact on reminding him of the sovereignty of God. And even in their weirdness, he was reminded that God has every detail under control. And so, He could speak to them about the principle of leadership, about getting things right side up. And he could say, you know what? Guys, you are not in a management industry. That's God's business. You aren't even in a sales industry. You're in a service industry. And every time you see people who irritate you, and believe me, they were irritating each other. That's what the discussion was all about. Every time you see people who irritate you and you hang around with people who irritate you, weird people, your job is to serve them. Because that's what I have done. Now the last point. Oh gosh. I, I, I really can talk a, a long time about weird people. <clears throat> and this is why. Weird people... Are allowed to come into your life to remind you of yourself. The more irritation you have with other people on certain qualities of theirs, probably, if you look at it long enough, will be the very qualities that irritate you about yourself or that you're hiding from. God allows people to irritate us to give us a mirror. Jesus reminded himself of his servant role when he was lecturing them about theirs. He said, that's why I have come, to serve you. Do you see what he did? He used them as a mirror. He used them as a reminder to focus him on his role. Not to judge them. Not to be taken up solving their lives problem, but to be reminded of what he needed to do for them. I went to a House of Hope banquet last night. and one of the, and the, As far as I was concerned, the, the best part of the whole evening was a, a young gal who got up and told her testimony of her life before she came to Jesus Christ. And it was awful. It was absolutely awful. But after she got done, the mother stepped up. And the mother said, in essence... I brought my daughter to the house of hope to be fixed because I thought she was the one with the problems. I was the one with the problems. Problems. I didn't even realize the very things I hated in her were the patterns that I had lived out in my own life. And I never saw it until the Holy Spirit came to me and said this is you God allows us irritating people so that we can be a little irritated with ourselves and we can say God that's me help me If there are people in here who have never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and they are just wandering around this world angry and irritated with no alternative but trying to get their own needs answered but sensing that they never will and they have found an answer today in a greater purpose let them right now say God I don't want to live apart from you anymore I want to know you personally and I want your purpose for my life come into my heart. Forgive my sins on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. And let me follow you. And for the rest of us, Lord, who are following you, who have made that commitment, but have a lot of time left here on earth till we get to heaven, and we don't want to waste it, especially blaming when we could be serving criticizing when we could be encouraging and missing you when we could be seeing you in everything. Help us to do that. In the spirit and the nature of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The service is ended. In peace.